Good morning, everybody. Social media has quite made quite an impact on our world, and I doubt that there's anybody in this room today that hasn't been affected by social media one way or the other, whether you're part of it or hear about people talking about it or whatever. It's made a huge impact on our world. And, um, you know, I had heard a statistic a few years ago that said that um, if Facebook were a country, it would be the third largest country on the planet, right behind China and right behind India, who have uh, both passed a billion people. And so just in preparation for this sermon, I looked up that statistic and found out that I was completely wrong in that statistic. So I will give you a more updated statistic. Today, if Facebook were a country, it would be the largest country on the planet. It was 1.4, there's uh, 1.4 billion people in China. There is a 1.44 billion people as of last April on Facebook. If you don't believe that social media has affected our planet, think about statistics like this. And you know, that number has probably risen because that number was from April. Because it doesn't even include one of the newest, most reluctant members of Facebook, And that would be our dear friend, Coy Williams, who's sitting there in the back section of the church. (laughs) You see, Coy Williams, not that I stalked his Facebook or anything, but he joined on July 4th so that he could check out the missionary adventures of his son and of of his children so he could minister to people. And if he accepts my friend request that I sent to you yesterday, Coy, he will be up to 24 friends on Facebook. Now, Coy, I've got to help you understand some Facebook stuff. You've got to really get on that because the number of friends that you have really tells us something about you and about how important you are. So 24, that number could come up a little bit. Just a little handy hint. Now, I won't say who participated, but in my family, there was a contest at one point to see who could get the most friends on Facebook in a certain amount of time. Now, I won't say who won the contest, but you know that the oldest person in the family has the most lifelong contacts. I'm not naming names, but who looks the oldest in this picture? Yes, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That was the one who won the Facebook friend contest. Um, of course, the one who looks the tiredest on there, I'll let you guess who that one is, didn't play that particular time. But anyway, it was quite a rivalry in the family, and people were getting uh, updates every day about how many friends that they had picked up on Facebook. It, it, our family is a little competitive. You know, as I was looking up the statistics about Facebook, uh, it said that Facebook boasts over 4 billion video views per day. 4 billion per day. And among Americans, this is just just in America, Facebook and Instagram accounts for one out of every five minutes spent on mobile phones. So your mobile phone is no longer just a place to make phone calls. It's a place to connect with the world through social media, through Instagram, through Facebook, and other kinds of methods. You know, and as the kids said on on the video, people base their image on Facebook and their likes and who's friending them and who is who is saying what about who on Facebook and you know we get cyberbullying and all kind of stuff that have come through our social media and 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 as a young lady also alluded to you can't just take a natural selfie you have got to get ready for these things because these selfie things are rather important you've got to know your best angles and your best poses ladies I've learned from my friends that if you put your hands on your hip it gives you a little bit bigger, better figure. So you're going to see a lot of women on Facebook with their hands on their hips working on amplifying that figure. 
And of course, everybody has to have the little pouty duck face thing. And if you do it one way, I don't really have it down, but it's supposed to look kind of more alluring. And if you do it another way, it's supposed to look like you've got a little bit of sass going on. Everybody's got to have their duck face photos um, because it's really important as you do selfies that you collect just the right photos. You know, there's even an app that you can get. I understand it's a free app. It was introduced to me by a family member. I haven't gotten it yet, but maybe I ought to. It's called Thinify. I mean, this is a revolutionary thing. You can slim yourself with Thinify. You can touch up problem areas. If you have like little wrinkles or, or things in the wrong place, maybe a little extra chin there, you can go ahead and delete those. You can lift and you can tuck things that were only formerly possible through plastic surgery on Thinify. Wow. It's a pretty amazing app. And I'm told that if you're going to use this app, that the key is to use it very subtly so that people don't know you've used the app. They just think you look really good in that picture for some unknown reason. Koi, I just want to say before I leave this part, if you don't accept my friend request, I'm going to be devastated. And I checked last night at midnight before I went to bed, and you had not accepted my friend request yet. (laughs) These things are very, very important in our world. And I would say today that while social media is a new development, it plays on a problem that's as old as the book of Genesis. Social media plays on our deepest longing. It plays on our desire uh, that's been in our spirit since the earliest of time to be loved and to be noticed and to be important and to have a place in the world. And somehow if we can find that, whether it be through social media, through different kind of avenues that we have in our life, we feel important. There's an author named Dr. Larry Crabb. He's a theologian and he's an author and he's a, a psychologist. And he writes it like this. I need to respect myself as a worthwhile person. Sometimes I don't feel like a person at all. I need to feel whole. I must like myself, accept myself. In order to really accept myself, I must be somebody. I cannot accept myself if I don't matter to anyone or anything. I must be able to regard myself as important. I must matter somewhere. I must see myself as able to do something that is meaningful to someone. But even if I have that, it isn't enough. If I am to feel like a worthwhile person, I must be loved by another person and loved unconditionally, accepted just as I am, without demand, without pressure. If I am loved because I behaved well, I am under pressure to keep on behaving well. I know that I might not, therefore I could lose love. I must be loved with an acceptance that I cannot lose no matter what I do. I must be loved by another person. This is something that goes on in all of our culture and has gone for, for in culture from time since way back when. And it's not just a new thing with the advent of social media. We have a need for personal worth, for self-acceptance, and they require two inputs. Larry Crabb goes on to write that the, the inputs are significance, which is purpose, importance, adequacy for the job, and security. We're both looking for, we're all looking for significance and security. Security is that unconditional, consistently expressed, permanent acceptance. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking for security and with looking for significance. Those are things that we have within us. They just are. They're there. And those are important and valid needs that we have in our life. But how many of you know that like the song that was written years ago, we go looking for love in all the wrong places? We go looking for that security and we get looking for that significance in ways that are not good for us, that are not good for our spirits, that are not good for what God's purposes and plans in our life for. We go looking for love. 
in all the wrong places. In the story of Jacob that we followed over the last several weeks, we learned that he's the heel grabber. He's always trying to grab onto something that's not his. God made him promises of what was to come in his life, but he still felt like he needed to manipulate and cheat and lie and try to get his way into that level of significance. God had promised before he was born that he was going to be a child of promise, that the family salvation line would go through him even though he wasn't the oldest, but he still felt like he needed to try to grab it on his own and make it his own. We talked about how he got tricked last week and he'd, and he'd worked for seven years to marry the really beautiful Rachel that he fell in love with at first sight. It was a wonderful romantic story until he got to his wedding night and the, night after, the day after his wedding, after the veil was removed and after they could see clearly, they realized, oh, I was tricked. I didn't marry the beautiful Rachel that I fell in love with. I married her ugly older sister Leah. And Laban has said to him in the scripture last week that we read, hey, listen, we got to marry the first one first. That's our custom. That's our custom. But if, if, if you'll stay with her for the next seven days, then I'll go ahead and let you marry Rachel as long as you work for me for seven more years. It was quite a story that we were reading last week. Jacob was such a heel grabber. He said, shoot, I'll even sleep with the ugly girl to get what I want. But I'm going to get what I want, and I'm going to get it when I want it. In today's part of the story, we're going to continue with the story of Jacob and of Leah and Rachel. And it, it was quite a story last week already, but it's going to get even crazier this week. We're going to see the characters in this story trying to meet their needs in ways that cause epic drama. Lots of struggle, lots of pain, lots of unnecessary challenges as they sought for that, cert- that sense of significance and that sense of importance. Last week we started reading in Genesis 29 and it contains the beginning of our story. But I'm going to skip up uh, several verses um, and I'm going to talk about where Laban gives his daughter to Rachel as her attendant. Let me skip up to the right page because I, I read the whole thing last time but I think I'm going to go ahead and start here. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, it doesn't take a psychologist like Dr. Larry Crabb to know that we had trouble in the air already. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. The story continues in Genesis 30. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God? Who has kept you from having children? That being interpreted, Hey, I've had four kids with your sister Leah. Obviously, things are working for me here. So this has got to be your problem. And I'm not God and I can't fix your problem. That's what that meant. Then he said, then she said, I'm sorry, Rachel said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me. And I too can build a family through her. Jacob said, okay, I'll take one for the team. (laughs) 
So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. This is quite the sibling rivalry, isn't it? So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Wow, Jacob's got quite the life here. Odd custom that we don't do today, thankfully, but it was common back in those days. Leah's servant Zilpah bought Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The woman will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Now this is a weird part of the story, and it's a little bit not how we do culture today, but, you know, mandrake. I was wondering what the mandrake was. Mandrake was kind of, um, shall we say, an aphrodisiac. It made the woman uh, able to, uh, supposedly in that day, they believed it, it made her more fertile, and it made the man more desirous. And so, can you imagine the drama here? It must have been pretty intense around there for Reuben to say, hey, Mom, I was out in the field today, and I got you some plant that you could take so that Dad will sleep with you, and maybe you'll feel a little bit better. I mean, I mean, when, when, when my kids were little, uh, you know, they would, Noah would come in from the field, and he would see that I was having a bad day or something, and, and he had these, he loved them. They were, he called them purple flowers, but they were actually like weeds with these little purple thingies on top of them. But he would come in and very sweetly say, Mommy, Here's some flowers for you. I hope you feel better. And I was, oh, and that was so sweet. Or uh, not long ago, I was having a little bit of a bad day, and, and my girls got together, and they conspired, and they took me out and got me a massage and took me to a great meal and got me a pedicure. It was so awesome. I mean, those are the kinds of things you do when your family member's having a bad day, but this is kind of wild. Went out and got mandrakes. Huh, quite a story. But it gets worse. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So here's the women. They're fighting over the mandrakes. But he said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. (sighs) So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. Junior high parents are going to have quite the conversation when they go home from church today. (laughs) God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband, so she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, he didn't forget, and listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Rachel said, God has taken away my disgrace, and she named him Joseph. May the Lord add to me another son, Rachel said. Now, I confess when I read the story, it's quite a story. I, I, I mean, it has nothing on reality shows of today. I mean, reality shows pale in comparison to some of this kind of stuff going on. But, but, you know, when I read the story, I confess that I relate more to Leah than to Rachel. 
the, the one that's kind of in the background, the one that's not at the forefront, the one who's maybe uh, feeling a little rejected in the story, or a lot rejected. You know, when they have the story of Mary and Martha in the Bible, where, where Mary is the one that goes and sits at Jesus' feet um, in the New Testament, and then Martha's the one working in the kitchen, and, and Jesus says Mary's done the better part. I always had trouble with that story, too, because I, I relate more to Martha in the kitchen doing stuff, and it's like, well, I wanted to argue with God and say, God, now now if, if everybody's like Mary is sitting at your feet, then who's going to get up and get everything done? Now, come on, let's have a little balance here, Lord. You see, I, I, I relate to the wrong character sometimes in the story, and when I was preparing for this uh, sermon today, I listened to a man who was preaching it, and, and the preacher was making this great and powerful point about the story and saying that, that Leah was a punishment for Jacob's trickery, and we talked a little bit about that last week because he, you know, Jacob was a tricker, and so Jacob got tricked, and, and Leah was the trick that was played and everything. And, and I understand that, and that's all good and well, but when, when he said that, something in my heart said, no, 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 Leah shouldn't be the punishment. She shouldn't be the punishment just because she wasn't the pretty one just because she wasn't the one who was desired. I remember uh, as a kid, I, w- I was never the one to win the popularity contest in school. I was kind of different than most of the kids in, in my class for lots of different kinds of reason. And I remember in the fourth grade, such a wonderful time when you're nine years old and I was sitting at the table and was sitting with a group of, of my friends who kind of liked me a little bit. And, and there was a group of boys that were sitting at the next table. And after lunch, the boys came over. Um, one of the boys came over to me. His name was Junior Lamb. You know, I forget lots of things. I can't remember my own kids' names half the time, but you can remember the names of these people who had such an impact on your life. And Junior Lamb comes up to me at nine years old and announces to me, we voted, the boys at our table voted, and you are the second most unpopular girl in the whole fourth grade. (sighs) I still remember it. And that was next to the girl who was just, you know, a little overweight, and so everybody liked to make fun of her, and so her and I were kind of the unpopular girls in the class. And they made sure to let me know. And and the kind of things shouldn't stick with you, but somehow they do. And that becomes a part of who you perceive yourself to be. I know that uh, I'm one of three sisters. I'm the oldest, and then there's my second sister, Robbie, and my third sister, Christy. And we began to observe over the years and had a conversation about it, about what people commented about us when they, when they stopped. Now, now, ever since she was just a little bitty girl, like just a baby in a stroller, we would walk through the stores with, with my sister, Christy, and she has these great big, beautiful eyes with these eyelashes that you would think that she had mascara on, even though she doesn't wear, wear mascara at all, even when she was a baby. And people would stop us in the store, and they'd say, Oh, you have the most beautiful daughter. Isn't she lovely? Look at those eyes. And then my sister Robbie developed this amazing personality. I mean, she had the big personality. She lights up a room when she walks in. You will notice Robbie when she walks in. She can tell the best jokes and the best stories. And, and Robbie is just a lot of fun to be around. And everybody wants to be around Robbie. And, and I was kind of in the background, a little more studious, kind of taking care of stuff. And one day my sisters and I actually had a conversation about this when we were teenagers. And my sister Christy analyzed it like, okay, well, I guess... Um, I'm the pretty one, and Robbie's the one with the personality, and Melanie is the smart one. Oh, cool. I get to be the smart one. And, but, 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 you know, I'd heard that from people kind of growing up, and that, that's uh, kind of affected who I am and, and how I've thought of myself. And so I, I began to find my significance in being smart and capable and responsible because as the oldest child, you're always the responsible one going around trying to do all the right things and to be hardworking. And that... That was the smart one, not the pretty one, not the one with the big personality that everybody lights up when they walk in the room, but the one in the background. And I suspect that I'm probably not the only person in the room today that has felt like you weren't the really cool one at the front of the pack. 
You weren't always the one that, that everybody was gravitating to and say, oh, how, how wonderful, how beautiful. Don't they tell the best, coolest things? Maybe you are, but maybe there's some of you who aren't. In the story, we find that Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah. But when, Leah, when, Je- when God saw that Leah was not loved, the scripture says very cl- plainly that he enabled her to have children and said, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you the ability to do something that your sister can't do. As cool and as awesome as she is, I'm going to give you the ability to do something that she can't do. You see, there's a, there's a principle in Scripture that happens over and over again, and we see it very clearly in this story, and it's good news for all of us who feel like Leah's, and that is that God selects what people reject. God selects what people reject. And so my good news for you today here, if you've ever felt like Aaliyah, if you've ever felt the sting of rejection, the pain of not being the cool one, is that for everyone who was left by somebody, who was rejected by somebody, who was voted the, most, the, the least unpopular, who wasn't picked first at school, has maybe been left by a friend or a family member, been told that you weren't good enough, you weren't enough, you weren't enough, what God would say to us today and what God would say to Leah in this story is God selects what people reject. And if you've ever been in the place of that lonely, unloved Leah, when God sees you lonely and rejected, lying on your pillow, crying at night, wondering that someone will notice you, God says, I see you, I notice you, and I choose you. I choose you. You're chosen. You're not plan B. I'm going to find good use for what other people think is a throwaway. What other people say is, is, is a reject, I'm going to find good use for you see, it's a passage throughout script. It's a principle throughout Scripture because one of the things we learn about Jesus, Jesus, the Savior of the world, we call him Messiah, we call him Savior, Lord, we go up here and sing great songs about him by our praise team. But what the Bible says about Jesus is Jesus was the stone that the builders, how many know the Scripture, rejected. The, the Scripture also says about Jesus that he was despised, that he was rejected by men. But yet he was the Savior of the world. Amazing things happen through Jesus as God came to earth in the form of Jesus, but he was despised and rejected. The Bible even says that God uses the foolish things, the things that are considered idiotic by other people to confound the wise because that's the way he works. He's not just looking for what other people consider top shelf. He's finding you and me and all of us who have felt the sting of life and saying, I choose you, I select you. If you're wondering when is your time, don't worry. God has you in mind. If Jacob knew what Leah really had inside of her, he might have treated her differently. But he was blinded by peripheral things around. God sees us and he knows us. And Jacob may have seen Leah as insignificant and she may have been insecure. But God, there's that God factor. God God doesn't agree with that at all. God sees you and he knows you. But, you know, I want to make another point about this rejection. That in God, rejection is not a dead end. In our world, we see rejection as a dead end. I can't have the children. I'm not the most popular. I'm not the coolest person. I don't, didn't get the great job. Somebody passed over me. They loved her more than they loved me. What is it? In God, rejection is not a dead end. It's a redirection. And that's a point that we started with a little bit last week in the sense that God has a plan for your life. And he has a journey that he wants you to go on. And there's an end destination. And no matter how many mistakes you make in your life, he's going to keep redirecting you. We compared it to Siri last week or to your GPS where God keeps turning you around and saying, okay, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, come back to where I want you to be because I've got a plan for your life. And no matter how far you go off course, he's still going to keep redirecting you. Amen. 
And that's a powerful way to look at rejection not being a dead end. But on another uh, connected but, but slightly different way of looking at it, he will also redirect your life when you've been rejected. Leah's life and her legacy were not over because her husband didn't love her. Jacob's life was not over because his daddy liked Esau better, his older brother. You see, that wasn't the end of their story. The rejection was not the end of the story. And you know, maybe you don't even realize it, but maybe if if you ever face rejection, maybe the path that you're on wasn't even the best one for you, and God is going to use this rejection as a path, as a chance to redirect you in some areas. Maybe you're so busy seeking those people's approval and wanting them to like you and think you were the coolest and the best and the most wonderful that you didn't see that God had another plan for their li- your, your life and that, that your plan and their plan were not supposed to be intertwined and that God is moving you on from those people who will reject you. We don't know what God has planned for all of our lives, but we do know that he does have plans. And you can spend so much time moping about rejection and making your life miserable and making everybody around you miserable. To the point that your son goes and gets you some mandrakes. That you don't even realize that God is wanting to redirect your path. He's wanting to do some new things in you. And you've got to accept this point if you're going to move on. That rejection is not a dead end. It's not the end of the story. God has more to your story. It's a redirection. But I have some other things to share with you. And that is until he is enough, it, whatever it is in your life, will never be enough. If, it, if, it's, if it's a job, if it's a person to accept you, if, if, it's, if it's some situation in your life that you can't get past because you have been rejected, that's never going to be enough. Until he is enough, your needs won't be satisfied. Jesus said, if you can, uh, God says, if you can find your significance in me, so that no matter where you go and no matter what you do, I'll be your source. Then you can find a sense of contentment that won't go away. You see, the Bible clearly says that God opened Leah's womb because she was rejected. Now, at this point, Leah had some choices. One of the choices she could have made was, praise God, you're looking out for me. I know my husband doesn't like me, but you're looking out for me. Glory to God, I will praise you forever. But instead, Leah sought to find acceptance and approval from people around her through the accomplishments of having children. And you can tell, one of the ways you can tell this is by listening to the story of how she named her sons. Her first son she named Reuben, and her comment after she named him Reuben, surely my husband will love me now. Simeon, because God heard that I am not loved. Levi, now at last my husband will become attached to me. We read these scriptures earlier. Gad, who was her kid by her maidservant. What good fortune. Asher, another kid by the maidservant. The women will call me happy. I'm not sure, but she wasn't come across as real happy to me in this story. Issachar. Her next to the last son, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband, Zebulun. Now my husband will treat me with honor. She was trying to use all of her accomplishments in order to gain acceptance and to gain approval and to gain her significance in life. And she kept trying to do that through her accomplishments. But how many of you know that even no matter how much you accomplish, how much that you do, how many ways that you try to move forward, there's still that emptiness inside of you. And, and, and even Rachel, she had all the love. She, had, she was beautiful. Her husband adored her. Her husband would do anything that he could for her. And yet, she was miserable. Because she didn't have the child. It's not accomplishments that's going to meet your needs. Sometimes you can have it all on the outside and be barren on the inside. And that's the case that we found with Rachel. 
where she had everything. She had everything that everybody wants. She had the perfect selfie. And yet she was miserable. And whatever you think is going to fill the void in your life will not fill it. You know, even, I would love to say that when you become a Christian, if you are not a Christian, if you become a Christian today, that you're never going to try to do this. And you're never going to try to fill the void in your life with anything but God because you're going to be so fulfilled. But if you've been living for God for a number of years, for a number of minutes, you realize that we as people are prone to try to go back and fill our lives with other things, even when we've asked God to be in charge of our life. Money, cars, jobs, spouses, how many people like you on Facebook, who's friended or unfriended you this week, doesn't matter, that can't fill the void. We're prone to idolatry, we're, we're prone to wanting to... to to worship things that we can control. And so instead of saying, I give my control to Almighty God and I trust that he's going to take care of me and, and he is enough for me, we want to try to, in the, in the scripture, they talk about things made with hands that people worship. They would carve out idols. We don't really carve out idols in our culture today. But we do like things that we can control, our relationships with other people, our likes on Facebook, all these kind of things we try to use to control. But I'm reminded of an old song. I don't have quite the singing voice that my husband does, so I'm not going to break into song at this point. But I will quote the words of this song for you. The old song we used to sing about altar call time would be, Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only he can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew. Sweet love and joy in heaven too. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Rachel and Leah, you can have as many kids you want. You can have your maids have kids for you. You can have the love of your husband, be the jealousy of all around you, and it still won't be enough. Only he will be enough. And so today, if you're searching for things that will be enough for you, that will satisfy those empty places in your heart, I encourage you to look to Jesus, because he will be enough. And I want to give you one final encouragement here. And that is that God's picture is bigger than your picture. Or if I were to put it another way, God's plan is bigger than your plan. You see, the, the, the big concern for Rachel and, and Leah, they were just kind of looking through the small picture, the small snapshot of their life. And Leah and Rachel wanted significance and security, and they wanted to do it through having children and making sure that their husband loved them the best and their husband loved them more than anyone else. And they wanted to ensure their standing in the world. And that's what their whole concern was. And it was like they had blinders on, and that's all that they can see is what's going on in my personal drama in my personal life right now. But God had a bigger picture and plan. You see, Rachel's son, Joseph, that one that was born at the very end of our scripture passage, he actually saved the entire family. He saved the entire nation. It was a, it's, it's a wild story, and it's definitely worth reading in, in the scripture if you're not familiar with it. But he went all the way from, from being a favorite son to being a prisoner to being second in command in all of Egypt. And God used him in that capacity to feed his family because they had food when nobody else did, and there was a famine. And it was a horrible time, but Joseph, that child was able to save the entire family because of what God did in and through his life. And it, one of my favorite scriptures in Bible, because it's meant so much to me in my life, what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. That come, that's a, that was something that was written about Joseph's life. He was tried to destroy, but instead God used it for good and saved the whole family. That was Rachel's son. But also those of you who are scholars of the Bible may remember that generations before, God had promised Jacob's grandpa Abraham... Through your seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Before Jacob was even born, 
he was picked as the one, the one through whom um, salvation history would be recorded. And even though Esau was loved by God, he was not the one to carry out this particular part of the plan. And we see Jacob really trying to wrestle with that and trying to become what he was already supposed to become and what all he was already determined to become. But see, while everybody was concerned about their little thing that was going on right now, God was concerned about the entire salvation of the world. And while they were fussing over who looked better and who had more kids and who's going to sleep with Jacob tonight, God was saying, no, I've got a plan, and I've got a plan that's bigger. I've got a picture that's bigger than your picture. If you could only understand the picture that I have, the plan that I have. Now, Now, you know that if you study the Bible, that Jesus was a Jewish person, which means somewhere along the line, great, 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 lots of greats, granddaddy was Jacob. That was his grandpa. And that's not news to many of you. Many of you have heard that already. But let me point out something really interesting, and I'll do it through reading the scripture. And this is from Matthew chapter 1. It's on the screen. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, most of us will to this point in scriptures, we try to skip over these as quickly as possible because it's a little boring to read all these lineages, honestly. But there's something that I want you to notice about this particular family tree that's here. I'm going to skip down to verse 16 in Matthew chapter 1. It talks about Jacob, not the same Jacob we're talking about, but a new Jacob generations down the road. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called Messiah. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And then we have Judah, and way down the line we have Jesus. Uh, Stop and think about that for a second. Who was Judah's mother? Hmm, that's right. We remember from our scripture that it was Leah. The one who was unloved, the one who was unrecognized, insecure, felt insignificant, felt not as important as her sister Rachel, somehow became one of the mothers in the line of Jesus the savior of the world, while she was thinking about all of these things and and, and do I have significance in my husband's eyes, God was thinking about, I'm going to use your life to bring salvation to the world because your great, 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 great and on grandchild is going to be Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah that's coming to save you and I and generation after generation from their sins. She wasn't the pretty one. She wasn't the cherished one. But God had a plan for her life. And it was bigger than she could have ever imagined. If you had told her what God's plan was for her life, she wouldn't have even believed what God's plan for her life was. But yet, it happened. Because God's plans are bigger than our plans. Amen. Isn't that exciting to know? Isn't that good to know? God's plans are bigger than our plans. You know, as I was reflecting on this point... I thought of a young na- lady named Paja Strepka. Paja was a 17-year-old girl who immigrated to the United States. Wasn't necessarily well-loved by her family. Came over to start a new life. She ended up marrying a man that she met again here in the United States. It had actually been her neighbor, neighbor back in the Ukraine, and they married here in the United States and found a family and found, began a family together. Interestingly enough, Paja was from an Orthodox background. There's a lot of good people in the Orthodox background, and they tried to be some of those good people, and they tried to serve God the best that they could. But there was a tradition in the Orthodox religion that you had to make a big Easter dinner, and it had to be blessed by the priest. 
And if it wasn't blessed by the priest, then you couldn't have your Easter dinner and it was ruined. And this was a very, very important thing. And you spent a long time making this very, very special Easter dinner. In fact, Ukrainians are known for their Easter eggs. I mean, Easter is a big deal in Ukrainian culture. And so she fixed the big feast and she waited and she waited and she waited a little longer and time kept passing. The priest never came and finally it came to the end of the day and they realized the priest wasn't going to come. And, and, and Peter, he became very, very unhappy because he saw his wife's misery and he saw her rejection and how, how miserable she was because her Easter dinner had been ruined and they had not been blessed by the priest. And he went and he had stern words with the priest. And he said, what is it? Why did you ruin my wife's day? Why did you reject her? Why did you not come and bless the meal? Didn't you know we couldn't eat it? And the priest said, I didn't come to bless the meal because you all were behind on your giving to the church. And so I decided not to come. Well, that combined with some other events that were going on in Paj's life. They were going to language school to try to learn this new English language better, and they met some people there who had, had, had been impacted by this new revival that was actually sweeping the nation. And it was a, a revival where people were growing closer to God, and, and, and they were being impacted by the Spirit, and it was called a Pentecostalism. And, and they said, why don't you check this out? Well, they hadn't wanted to check it out, but when the priest wouldn't come to bless the home, they were suddenly open to some more things. And they said, you know... We, we cherish our heritage, but we'll check out this new thing. And they began having prayer meetings and Bible studies in their very own home. And they had a daughter named Catherine who was nine years old, and she was powerfully impacted by the power of the Spirit. And that began a revival that continued out through an amazing uh, community that developed their immigrants from all over the world that began to experience this power of the Spirit. And God could have worked in their family through the Orthodox Church, but, but God, it seemed like, had a plan to, to use this new movement in their family because their family became a ministry family. Paja and Peter continued their jobs um, working as doing manual labor, but, but the daughter Catherine, she married a man named Stan, and Stan was a clerical worker from Ohio that had moved to New York City um, to try to seek his fortunes, and they felt a call to ministry, and so uh, they, they began to minister together, and they started little church plants in, in Pennsylvania, and, and then there was a group of ministers they were connected with that wanted to start a family, uh, wanted to start a denomination, and, and they saw that Stan knew how to do office work, so they said, hey, you're the guy that knows how to do office work can you please come and be the secretary for our denomination and so he became the second stand and Catherine became the secretary and spouse for that denomination and God was God was doing amazing things and, and the revival of the spirit was spreading all around and, and they actually ended up over the course of their ministry ministering on every continent except for Antarctica where there were no churches um, but they ministered to people all over the all over the world thousands and thousands of people all over the world and Stan and Catherine over the course of time had their own children they had one child who's still alive today and her name is Geraldine. and she and her husband have been in Scotland for over 30 years and Geraldine and her husband not only have founded churches there but they're now over working with ministers from all over Europe trying to encourage them and keep their ministries going strong they had a second daughter her name was Judy and Judy married a man named Bob and they both felt called to ministry and they ministered all over the United States in lots of capacities they served overseas um, Bob's passport had, was so big that it actually had to have pages added to it because they administered in so many different countries and there wasn't enough countries for the stamps. Judy was my mom. And then they had their oldest, uh, Stan and Catherine had the oldest daughter, Jean. And Jean also, she and her husband also felt called to ministry. In fact, they felt a passion for coming across the state from the other side of the state all the way over here to Knoxville. 
and they felt a passion for Knoxville. And 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 Paul and his and his dad actually began to build a church physically with their own hands. And the room that you're sitting here here right now was started by Paul and Jean and the people that they gathered to begin to build a building here that would become the church that you're sitting in here today. Judy's daughter Melanie, all of her kids are uh, all of her kids are in ministry. I'm here with Phil. Almost 50 years later, we were called here to be ministering in this very same congregation. But you see, when Paja had her meal ruined all those years ago, back about, uh, I don't know, 1920 or so, she couldn't have known that God had a new direction for her family to take. All she could see was rejection, and all she could see was the tears, and they've got my ruined meal, and I, my priest doesn't like me anymore, and what's to become of my life? And God said, I've got a redirection for you. I've got a new path for you to go on. And I'm not only going to impact your life by this, but your kids' life and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your great-great-grandkids and, and maybe even other people like you today who are being affected by all of our ministry are affected by a crazy little rejection over a meal that happened in 1920. You see, we can't possibly understand what God's plans are for us. And you may be looking at a snapshot of your life today with all of its blemishes, all the imperfections, the zits, the wrinkles, the extra things in the wrong place that you don't want them to be. And you're looking myopically at that little picture not realizing that God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. I need to say it again because some of you need to let it sink into your spirit. God has a plan for you that is bigger than what you can see. Hang on to Jesus and let him be enough for you. Realize that he can redirect your path because he has a plan for you and he loves you.